0: Good morning, church. My name's C.T. Eldridge, one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to share with you from God's Word. A few Sundays ago, I said baptism Sundays were my favorite days here at Woodside Romeo, but that Italian Family Fun Night, man, $2 just to get full of bread and pasta and tomato stuff, it's going to be amazing. I am eating my full, my fill. Well, this morning, we are continuing in our sermon series. On the Gospel of Mark chapters 8 through 10, we've called this series Into Focus. And specifically, we are in chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, about three quarters of the way through, uh, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29 is where where we'll be. Um, Just after the Gospel of Matthew, about three quarters of the way through the Bible, you'll see the Gospel of Mark there. As I went over last week, in these three chapters, Mark 8 through 10, Jesus is primarily focused on the 12 disciples. So he's not so much focused on confronting the other religious leaders, as he was prone to do, nor is he busy serving the crowds. But he spends this time in these three chapters working with his closest disciples, the 12 disciples. And his primary purpose for them is to bring them into focus on who he is and what it means to follow him. So today, we actually will see Jesus perform a miracle for a man in the crowd. However, as we'll see, the payoff for this miracle is actually to teach a lesson to the disciples. So, not merely to show his divine power and not merely to help out this man, but Jesus uses this instance to teach his disciples about what it means to follow him. So last week, we looked at the little detour that Jesus made up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, his three closest disciples. And there, on the top of that mountain, Jesus was revealed as the Son of God, who must also suffer. Well, where the gospel picks up today is when Jesus, Peter, James, and John reach the bottom of the mountain and find the other nine disciples there. So that's where I'll pick up for us as I read Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And there, the Holy Spirit writes, When Jesus, Peter, James and John came to the other nine disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted Jesus. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. And they brought the boy to Jesus, and when the Spirit saw Jesus immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood, and it is often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing the boy terribly, the spirit came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of the crowd said, He's dead. But Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when Jesus entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but for prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would use this story, use this scene to help us know what it means to follow Jesus. And so come, Holy Spirit, speak to our minds, speak to our hearts by the power only you can give, in Jesus' name, amen. What are you up against in life? What are you or your loved ones up against in life? And I'm trying to think beyond things like getting your taxes done, or making it through the winter, or getting back into the gym, as relevant as those things may be. But what are you up against in life that has seemingly impossible odds? Even though you know in your head, with God, all things are possible, but still in your heart... This will never change. This relationship in my family will never be restored. These marital problems with my spouse will never go away. This sickness in her body will never be healed. This loved one's heart will never soften to the gospel. This fear and anxiety will never be relieved. This depression of my spirit will never be lifted. This child that I long for will never be conceived. This spouse that I'm looking for will never be found. With God, all things are possible. But I don't know. I don't know. What are you up against in life that seems impossible to overcome? Well, today we join the disciples as they face that kind of challenge. And Jesus uses this opportunity as an object lesson on life with God when facing the impossible. Life with God when facing the impossible. And by object lesson, I mean that Jesus is not simply going to tell them about it. He's going to show the disciples what it looks like To face the impossible. So let's walk back through this story and see what Jesus has to teach us. So, making their way to the bottom of the mountain, Jesus notices a large crowd gathered around the other nine disciples. So you remember that Peter, James, and John had, had gone up the mountain with Jesus And the other nine of the twelve disciples were left at the bottom. And what's drawn the attention of this great crowd around the other nine disciples is a dispute, an argument. The nine disciples who did not go up the mountain are arguing with some religious leaders known as scribes. Scribes were local leaders within synagogues who would teach the Old Testament scriptures for the people. Well, there's some sort of debate. There's some sort of controversy. It's erupted into an argument. And as controversies do, it draws a crowd around them. And as Jesus approaches, realizing what's going on, the crowds also realize that Jesus is approaching. So in verse 15, they rush up to him greeting him, Mark says, with great amazement. So it's almost like Jesus' presence preceded him. By this time, Jesus had accrued much fame and notoriety as a teacher and a healer. So as soon as someone realized, hey, Jesus is approaching, this surge of excitement hits the crowd and they rush to greet him. This made me Recall what happened here last Sunday during the 10 a.m. service. Many of you may not have heard, but in that service, the senior pastor for all the Woodside campuses, Doug Schmidt, joined us in worship. And for many of you, that may not be a big deal, but for the staff and for many of our other leaders, there was sort of this buzz in the air. Did you hear that Doug's coming? Really? Really? Man, are you nervous? There was this excitement that preceded Doug's mere presence. And so it is for Jesus. As he makes his way down this hillside toward the crowd, this buzz hits them. And I can imagine that as the crowd rushes up to Jesus, they're already peppering him with questions and comments. Jesus, what do you have to say about this dispute? Did you hear what's going on? This is going to be wild. So Jesus makes his way closer to the characters involved in the controversy, and he's no different than anyone else. He wants to know what's going on. So, verse 16, he asks, What are you arguing about with them? But in verse 17, the answer doesn't come from one of the disciples or from one of the scribes. Instead, A man from the crowd speaks up. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Ah, therein lies the point of controversy. You see, back in chapter 6, Jesus had given his disciples authority over demons to cast them out and to relieve people who are suffering as this child is. And the disciples then had some success in doing so. But with this case, they are up against an obstacle they cannot overcome. And so you can imagine the embarrassment and disappointment that the disciples feel. The scribes are telling them, you're doing it all wrong. And this man just had to call them out in front of everybody, in front of Jesus, for telling them that they'd failed. Golly! Jesus goes up a mountain for a short trip, and before he comes back, we've already blown it. Ah! And then upon hearing of the disciples' failure, Jesus laments he moans verse 19 oh, faithless generation how long am i to be with you how long am i to bear with you and it's hard to know who this complaint is precisely aimed at on the one hand certainly the disciples are included after all jesus had just heard about their failure to relieve the boy But also, Jesus addresses this lament to the faithless generation. So he seems to really broaden the scope to sort of everyone, everyone who's in this generation. And as we'll find out in a few verses, even the father of the boy had his own struggle with faithlessness. So Jesus just has this general burden for faithlessness in the world, and he sighs, how long am I to be with you? This made me think about a proverb about parenting that I heard recently. I was actually, read this in a comic book. And the character said this. She said, you know what they say about parenting. It's long days and short years. And what she meant was that kids grow up so fast Before you know it, they're talking, then walking, then they're off to school, then they're graduating from school, then they're starting work and getting married and having babies on their own. Where'd the time go? Parenting is short years, but it's also long days. There's usually at least one day of the week where Meg has to work, and so I'll take the boys from her for most of the day. And man, I love those boys, truly. But they will wear you down. It is just nonstop, loud and messy and angry and crying and spilling and breaking and whining and fighting. And towards the end of the day, like 10.30 a.m., <laughs> I text Meg. How long? How long till you come help me? So that's a a trivial, amusing example of this. But that's where Jesus is. The faithlessness of his disciples and faithlessness in general is just grating on him. And this highlights our main point for today's sermon. God's work cannot be done in man's strength. The faithlessness of Jesus' disciples was a lack of faith in God. Instead of reliance and trust in God, the disciples apparently had slipped into self-reliance. Maybe it's because they'd had some success casting out demons before, and so presumption sets in. You know how it is, you you start out at doing something, you're new at it, so you're seeking God for help, you're humble in your approach, but then you start getting it down, and the attitude becomes, I don't need God anymore, I've got this, but God's work cannot be done in man's strength. Try as we might, just like the disciples here, our faithlessness will eventually get exposed, As we face one challenge or another. And so the bigger question is not, how can I overcome that which is impossible? But how can we overcome our faithlessness? So Jesus identifies and laments this faithlessness of ours. Yet, he has more he wants to teach us. And so he adds, bring the boy to me. So verse 20, the boy is brought to Jesus, and the spirit that has possessed the boy sees Jesus as he approaches, and it freaks out. Kind of like when you corner a wild animal, right? So when Meg and I moved into our first apartment, we had the privilege of hosting a large family of raccoons. They had taken up residence in our apartment in between the space above our ceiling and below our roof. They were delightful company, as you can imagine. But eventually, we called pest control and set up a time for them to come over. And I remember the pest control guy saying, I know they're driving you crazy, but don't go up there especially since it sounds like they have a nest up there, those mama raccoons will freak out on you if you get them cornered. Well, that's similar to what's happening here. This demon has set up residence in this boy, and he doesn't want to leave. But he sees this expert demon trapper coming, and he goes nuts. And this reaction was typical of demons when They were near Jesus. It was like they knew, my time is up. And so the spirit lashes out violently, convulsing the boy, throwing him to the ground. And the boy wildly rolls around on the ground, foam is seething from his mouth. And somewhat mysteriously, as this ruckus is going on, Jesus asks the father a question. How long has this been happening to him? So the dad scrolls back in his mind, seeing all the different scenes from his boy's life, all the different life stages his boy had been through. And none of these don't include this. From childhood, he answers. The majority of his life, almost as long as I've known him, he's been mute, he's been dumb. My little boy, unable to think, unable to speak, and prone to this. And furthermore, the dad goes on to say that the demon will often seize the boy as he stands near a fire or near water. So this spirit isn't just trying to torment the child. He's trying to kill him. You know, there are other instances of demon possession in the Gospels. And it's clear in those cases that the demon does not want their host, the person they've possessed, they don't want them to die. Because then they lose the opportunity to feed on their soul and to torment their host. But this demon does not care. He's like a kamikaze pilot. Kamikaze pilots are fighter pilots of airplanes who don't just shoot bullets and missiles at the enemy, but they actually fly their own plane into the enemy target, hurting the enemy, of course, but also killing themselves. And it's a certain level of madness you've had to reach to be a kamikaze. Well, that's the demon that this boy has. He doesn't care that he'll lose the one he's living off of, he just wants to destroy him. That's what Jesus and his disciples are up against. Another fascinating contrast between this demon and the other demons in the rest of Mark's gospel this demon is mute meaning he doesn't talk and he causes the boy to be unable to talk. So in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 5, there are instances of demon possession in which the demon speaks through the one they're possessing. So it's in those cases where they see Jesus and start to freak out. They will cry out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? those demons would speak, but none of that here in Mark chapter 9. The demon is described as mute and correspondingly, he never says a word. And I think this is meant to add to the demon's creepiness and scariness. For example, many of you may be familiar with the horror films Friday the 13th or Halloween. Well, in those movies, the villain, the boogeyman, Jason from Friday the 13th, and Michael Myers from the Halloween movies, they never say a word. They are faceless. They are speechless. We don't know their motives. We don't know their emotions. We just know they want to kill. That's this demon. And that's what Jesus and the disciples are up against and the father is desperate verse 22 he continues speaking to Jesus if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us have you ever been to that point before where the pain is so deep and the sadness is so constant, and the hopelessness is so paralyzing. Anything, anything you can do, whatever it takes, just help us, please. Jesus then responds to the Father, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. So remember, the Father said, if you can do anything, help us. And now Jesus says, if you can, anything is possible. If you believe it will happen, it will happen. So Jesus offers a subtle, ironic rebuke. The man said, Jesus, if you can. Jesus said, man, if you can. All things are possible for those who believe. Do you believe that God is able to do this? Do you believe that God's power exceeds all others? Will you rest in that truth? And the Father's response is stunning. Verse 24, right after Jesus offered this rebuke, Mark Mark writes, Immediately... The father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the most honest prayer in all of Scripture to me. I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus answers his prayer. Verse 25. You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And so with a mere word of rebuke, that which is impossible is overcome. The demon leaves the boy, but he leaves kicking and screaming, convulsing him terribly. And afterwards, Mark writes that the boy looked like a corpse. And the crowds respond, He's dead. He's got to be dead. Jesus then takes the boy by the hand, lifts him up, and the dead one is raised. And once more, the seemingly impossible is overcome. Right away, then, in verse 28, Mark takes us in to a home where Jesus is regrouping and reflecting with the 12 disciples. And the disciples ask Jesus, Why could we not cast it out? Why were we not able? Why did this obstacle remain impossible for us? Now this is interesting. You'd think, Jesus would say, because you don't have faith. Remember I lamented your faithlessness? Remember I said all things are possible for those who believe? and You don't believe. That's not what he says. Instead, he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything. It's impossible, but for prayer. So as followers of Jesus, that's the demand of this story on our lives. Pray to overcome the biggest challenges. As we're up against the impossible, believe through prayer. Trust in God's power by prayerfully relying on God's power. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to live a life prayerfully trusting in God. Now, you may be thinking, man, prayer seems so trivial, so minor, so actionless, and I can see why you might be frustrated if someone is just like, eh, just pray about it, just pray about it. It seems flippant and shallow. However, prayer is not contrary to taking action. But when we do take action, we do so having drawn close to God in prayer. We take action having humbly acknowledged to God and to ourselves our limitations as creatures. When we pray, we at least implicitly are communicating I am not God, I am not in control. I humbly bring to you the things I hope to see changed, the things I know you can change, but you are God, and you know best. And so we, th- we then can step into action, having let go of control, trusting in God, and seeking change. Praying like this demonstrates that God is at the center of all of our actions. Praying like this demonstrates reliance upon God to overcome our biggest challenges while at the same time we work faithfully to overcome our biggest challenges. So this may seem counterintuitive, this may seem like a waste of time, but such are the ways of heaven on earth, such are the ways of the kingdom of God. Come. Pray to overcome our biggest challenges. And secondly, pray to demonstrate the greatest love. Oh, this father's heart. It's broken. One of the greatest gifts of my life is to have been able to feel the love of a father for his. Son. Now, as I've said, my two little guys can drive me crazy, but they have stolen my heart. And think of it, even at the heart of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, even within the very being of God, there is this love of Heavenly Father for the Son. What a gift! the bond between father and son. And so this father's heart is crushed to see his son like this. And so he loves his son by seeking Jesus through prayer. If you can do anything, help us. Help my unbelief. Aha! You see, this father realized that prayer is not just about changing our circumstances, but about changing us. Help my unbelief. As I face the impossible, it's not just the impossible that I need you to change, it's me that I need you to change. So as we move into our time of taking communion, I want to... Band to come back up to lead us once more, and the ushers as well are welcome to get ready to pass out the elements. Our rhythm here is that on the first Sunday of the month, we take communion together, or the Lord's Supper. And this habit was begun by Jesus himself when he was still on earth. And this time of sharing in communion gives us a chance to slow down and reflect on what God has said to us and what we're going to do about it. This time gives us a chance to slow down and reflect on what God has said to us and what we're going to do about it. So, what are you up against in life? What are you up against in life that seems impossible to overcome? What are the circumstances of your trial? Who are the characters involved in your difficulty? Can you see them now and feel the desperation coming back? God's call on our lives as followers of Jesus is prayerful faith. Jesus urges his disciples toward trusting Prayer. And friends, the circumstances in your life that you're going through may not change immediately. That's not the promise of this text. The circumstances in your life may not change immediately. But that's not what God is most concerned about anyway. What God is most concerned about is changing us. Help my Unbelief, the Father prays. So as you receive the bread and cup in a moment, hold on to these things and we'll all take them together at once and use these moments to ponder in your hearts whatever it is that you're up against and plead for God to intervene. We can begin. it is that you're up against the promise of this meal is that God is with you and God is for you and the length to which he's gone to prove his love was the death of his own son Jesus body was broken for you his blood was spilled that you may have the hope of new life in him The same kind of new life that he gave that little boy when he raised him. The same kind of new life that Jesus himself received when he was raised from the grave. And the hope of this new life, resurrection hope, swallows up all the disappointments and all the pains that we will ever face in this life. So as we take the bread and the cup in a moment you receive these things, receive also the hope of this new life in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this, in remembrance of me. In the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the death of your son. But Father, we thank you that you gave him new life as well. And I pray, Father, that here, despite all of our unbelief, you would help us to believe, help us to believe and cling to all you are for us in your son the resurrection, and the life. Father, I pray, bring us to the point that this dad was at, where we cling to Jesus in hope for faith that we could overcome the impossible. Father, we believe. Help us believe, we pray, in Jesus' name.